excited to be able to worship together with you, but also I know that you're, at least I hope you're anxious a little bit to have some great barbecue here in just a little bit. Um, we, we just want to say right from the beginning, thank you first of all to Jeff, um, just a guy in our church who spent, him and Ricky were up all night um, just working on this barbecued pork. Apparently it takes like 12 or 14 hours to really do it right. So um, I won't call him out because he probably will kill me, but nonetheless, uh, looking forward to that. Take your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter number 22, Genesis chapter number 22. We're going to start a series that we're going to look at through the entirety of the summer called Jira. And if you're not familiar with the word Jira, it is a, it is a Hebrew word that is translated and it means this, to provide. It means to provide. One of the names of God, and you probably have heard this, is Jehovah Jireh. And that's translated from the word the Lord will provide. So in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14, we see that Abraham is going to name God, right, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the one who is the Lord will provide. Lord, capital L-O-R-D, translated out of the original languages as Yahweh. And one of the things that, that we see in Scripture is that Jehovah Jireh, it's not just a name as though we have a name, but this actually flows out of the very nature and character of God himself. His name is significant because he is sovereign. He is divine. He holds all things together, as Colossians says. Therefore, he provides based upon who he is. So as we go through this summer and as we teach through this series, we're going to look at all the ways that the Lord provides for his people, but we're going to begin where we must begin, and that is Jesus as our Savior. Now, I think what's hard for us sometimes is that we can, we can know intellectually that Jesus is our Savior, that he provides all things for us, but you know when it's hard, at least where it's hard for me? It's hard in those moments where life comes at us in such a way that it doesn't feel like God always provides. When things are really pushing down on you and you are in the midst of a struggle and we're trying to wrestle with, does God provide, then often what we do is we assign what we believe is a lack of God's goodness to him because he doesn't provide in the ways that we want. So our aim as we go through this series is just to remind us of all of the ways that God is our ultimate provision. So I'm going to do something a little backwards. I'm actually going to give you my main idea before I even read the text that I think sets not only the idea I want you to really walk away from this morning out of Genesis chapter 22, but for this entire series as well, and it's this. Because the Lord is the provider of our salvation, we can have confidence, assurance, steadfast hope that he will provide for all our needs. So what need do you have this morning? Where is it that life has intersected with your struggle that God is everything you need? I pray as we look at Genesis chapter number 22, man, the Lord will just encourage us and enlighten us to the truth that God is Jehovah Jireh. Let's read together. I'm going to begin. Hopefully you're there by now. 
in verse 1. Very familiar passage of Scripture if you grew up in church. So after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now, it wasn't Abraham's only son. Ishmael was his other son. But we have to understand that what the the original language is getting at here is is value or worth. Remember, Abraham kind of messed that whole thing up. He didn't actually believe that God was going to provide a son, the one that had promised. So he actually goes to his servant, and he has another son by the name of Ishmael. But this one is talking about the one that God said, I would provide for you. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now I'm going to talk about this here in just a moment, but that statement alone should probably strike you. Like take your son and go and offer him as a sacrifice. We've got to wrestle with what God is doing here in just a moment. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but if you have a, if you have a Bible like this, you may want to underline that or circle that, that God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. So they both went off of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Do you notice how this narrative then begins to slow down compared to what we've been through so far in Genesis or if you've been reading through the book of Genesis at all? The narrative slows down and begins to give us an incredible amount of detail. More than we see in any other text. And that actually is important as we start to talk a little bit about what it looks like that God is foreshadowing what it is that he's going to do. Let's continue on. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood, bound Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now that I know you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. 
And he said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Church, let's pray and then we're going to jump in to this text. Father, I pray that this morning that we would see how you have always been about yourself and your salvation of your people. And God, I pray that as we wrestle with some of the difficult points of this text, you would help us to actually have our affections stirred that you have always been about defeating sin and death. So God, we pray for wisdom as we walk through this this morning. God, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that if there's some in this room or maybe even watching online this morning that do not know you yet as their personal Savior, today would be the day that they put their faith and their trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's some questions that I think are worth asking. Does the Old Testament even matter? Is it even, is it even relevant for us today? But if so, then what do we do with a text like Genesis chapter 22? I have a, uh, I have a friend that I grew up with, went to church together. He's, contrary to what you're going to see actually in a quote that I'm going to read here in a minute, he is, a, he is not a believer. He just believes in a plurality of gods and you can kind of do whatever you want to do and all of that kind of stuff. And, and as I was studying this week and obviously having to find myself in the Old Testament and really wrestling through some of the parts of this text, I came across his social media uh, post this week, which really struck me because I think that what he writes is not just often what a lot of, a lot of other non-believers think, but also what a lot of believers think. And he writes this, in all reality, Christians should reject the Old Testament completely. He said, Jesus came here to spread the word of God because he was God, capital W-A-S. Now, he doesn't actually believe that, but that's a sidebar. His teachings differed from the, and I know him very well, so I can say that. His teachings differed from the Old Testament because they were literally a new word of God. The Old Testament shouldn't be relevant to Christians and shouldn't have been for over 20 centuries. And I think one of the reasons that my friend and maybe even if you this morning have been this week reading this text, it would naturally in us elicit some questions that before we even begin, I think we just need to kind of lay on the table before us. The most obvious being, why is it that God would ask Abraham to kill his son? 
Or maybe you've been thinking about this way. Um, if you get yourself into this narrative, what is it that, that Isaac in this moment is thinking about both his dad and about God? Because I don't know about you, but if I'm, if I got my dad who's strapping me to an altar and his knife is raised, raised above it, I'm not thinking that dad, I'm thinking dad's crazy. That would be my natural inclination. I also wondered this, what is going through Abraham's mind? I heard from God. All right, I got to go kill my son. We would all say that's lunacy today. I asked this question for myself then. Why would I want to follow a God who made such a request? But all of those questions and all of the other questions that you may have really ask one question. Is God good? And the reason that we ask that, we struggle with that, that we wrestle with that sometimes is because we look at a text like this and we say, how could a good God make such a request? So there is, I think, some keys that we need to wrestle with just to help us understand this text. So I'm going to do these really quickly because I don't have a lot of time to just kind of explore all of those. But here's what I want you to know. We are dropping into a narrative in the middle of Genesis that is a, is a small narrative of a much larger narrative of God's unfolding plan of redemption. So what we're going to see is that Abraham is the conduit by which God is going to use to bless all people. And that's fully realized eventually in Jesus Christ. So the, the, the book of Genesis, and actually a lot of the Old Testament, uses some literary features. This may be more than you want to know, but go with me here. Called foreshadowing and typology. In other words, foreshadowing is this. It is an indication of a future event. So what we're reading here is not just what's occurring in the, the here and now, but it's also foreshadowing a future event. And typology, typology is just simply when we see a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Because if from the moment of Genesis chapter 3, when the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, God begins to reveal his plan of redemption that is fully realized when we get to the cross of Jesus Christ. So Isaac then is a type of Christ. We look at that and we see for just a moment there what Jesus is going to do, foreshadowing and typology. Now here's the second thing. We tend to read this story from our vantage point instead of God's. See, it's natural just to put ourselves in the position of reading it and imagining we're a we are Abraham and Isaac. If you read this text this week, I'm going to guess this. Not a single one of us read that from the vantage point of God. We put ourselves in the place of Abraham or Isaac or we ask these questions. Like, why would I do that? The writer of Genesis, though, leaves us no doubt about God's intentions. Look at verse 1. It says this, God tested Abraham. So right away, the writer of Genesis wants to make sure that we understand what God's intentions are. He does not leave us wondering, God tested Abraham. And listen to me, testing 
and temptation are not the same thing. See, God does not tempt us. That's James 1.13. But testing is actually a means of God's grace in our life. God tested Abraham. God will test you. In his first epistle, Peter puts it this way. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice. It's talking about the gospel there in the context. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Grieved by various trials. Could we not say that in our lives, I don't care how long you've been uh, been alive, you have been grieved by various trials. But Peter goes on to answer the, the reason for that. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith So the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith which now is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, see all of the connections there, may be what? Found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're you're like me at times and you, you say, I do not like God testing me. Like, I would rather be able to avoid all of the tests and the hardships of life. Are you tracking with me on that? Is there anyone else who can feel like, if I could avoid that, that's exactly what I would want to do. And I have wrestled with that at times in my life. This question, why is it that God would even test us? Well, it's an act of grace and love. It's it's meant to demonstrate to us who we trust and rely on. Listen to me, church. God is sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent. He's not wondering what you're going to do. You are. You don't know tomorrow. You don't know this afternoon. And when life intersects us in ways that become really, really difficult, that's when our faith can have moments where it feels like it is crumbling. God tests us so that we might experience his faithfulness and his steadfast love that endures forever. And he wants to strengthen us, and he also wants to see his provisions, the things that he constantly gives us, as the goodness of God. Listen, this was not Abraham's first test. We all know this, right? He had always experienced God's good provisions through a test. When God first called him to leave his homeland, he said, Abraham, I just want you to go, and I will tell you once you you leave where it is that you're going. That in and of itself is a significant test. Do I trust God to leave everything I know and go to a place that I have not even told where I'm going? Or when he gets there, and eventually because of famine, his wife Sarah is taken by the Egyptians into the house of Pharaoh. And of course, we know that Abraham royally messed that one up because he didn't trust God in the middle of that. Or when God puts him in the midst of his enemies and says, see all of this land? I'm giving that to you and all of your descendants. And then when he gives him the promise of his son, Isaac is going to be that promise. 
But Abraham and Sarah are well beyond the point in life where they can have children. And I've often thought about that story. I can't even imagine being in my 90s and thinking, wow, now's the time to have a baby. (laughs) I'm 48 and I'm thinking, now is not the time to have a baby. See, God had always shown Abraham that he could be trusted in whatever it was that he was calling him to. But now, Abraham is right here at this pinnacle moment where all of the things that God had tested Abraham in order to build his strength and to build his faith culminated in this one unbelievable moment. And I think if I was Abraham, it would have appeared in that moment that God wasn't good. But Abraham knew and trusted that God would provide. He just knew it. He had experienced it. He believed it. And how? He had no idea. He didn't know how God was going to provide that. But Hebrews 11 actually gives us a little bit of an idea, uh, maybe of what he was thinking. See, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 17, puts, us this, puts it this way. By faith, when he was test- by faith Abraham, when he was tested, did what? Offered up Isaac. And he talking about Abraham, who had received the promises, God's promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So I want you to consider what Abraham must be thinking. God promised, he's been faithful, I know this is true, I know that I can trust this. This is what God has said he is going to do through me, through my son Isaac. And then what did Abraham do? Verse 19, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, talking about Isaac, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham said, I don't know how this is going to work. But if that's what God is calling me to in this moment, then God will raise him from the dead. And I don't know where it is that you're at this morning in the midst of life. I have no idea what you might be wrestling with or what you might be struggling with, but here's what I know. That God in his perfect provision will always provide for you. And you may not know how, and you may not know the time, and you may not know the means to that. And it may not always be in the ways that you like, but he will provide. You see, God is not good because he provides. What he provides is because he is already good. That make sense? Flows out of the nature and character of God. So where is it that we see God's goodness? Because As I said at the beginning of this message, we have to start with our salvation. And we can see that God is good when we first believe this, that what my sin demands, God alone provides. Look at a couple of places with me back in Genesis chapter 22. First, go down to verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Logical question, right? They're going to make a sacrifice. 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both, so they went, both of them, together. Now skip ahead and look at verse 13. So then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket of his horns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I want you to do something with me here for a moment. As I read that text earlier, I want you just to drop into the middle of the narrative personally. I want you to just feel the agony. I want you to just imagine the weight of that moment. God says this, Isaac must die. What would you be thinking? How would you be feeling? Where would you be struggling? I'm a dad of three kids. My youngest is a boy. I can't imagine. Can I just be honest with you? I can't imagine. I would be screaming like, no. You don't understand. I'm, I'm not willing, God, to follow you that far. And yet, here we see Abraham, by the time we get to this text, that even though that is true for us, God has bigger purposes in this test, and it's showing Abraham both what is required, but also what it is that God is going to do. And you know how that starts? That starts with just knowing what my sin demands. See, because God is good, then sin is the opposite of everything that God is. If you want the theological definition, it's this. Sin is our failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, and nature. So it's a holistic definition. In other words, there's not anything. It's not just our external behavior, but our thoughts and our actions, our very nature at the core of who we are. We are sinful people. So that if we take our sin, if we begin to, to understand the depravity of that, it must be measured against the holiness, the perfection, the absolute righteousness of God's law. See, our sin demands to be punished because it goes against the very nature of God himself. Listen to me. God could not be righteous and not punish sin, or he would not be God. My sin is going to make a demand on me that I cannot pay myself. Because Romans tells us no one is righteous. No, not one. Last year, I was having a conversation um, with somebody that I've known for a long time, not here. It's actually while we were traveling. And because I'm a pastor, it, it always ends up that I get asked the Bible questions. So we start this conversation, and I'm thinking to myself, like we're, we're kind of on vacation, and I'm thinking to myself, like I really don't want to have this conversation right now because this always ends up in the same place. But nonetheless, the Lord gave us an incredible opportunity for, um, for me to share the gospel more directly than I had ever, ever had before. 
And I'm thinking, man, what a gracious thing that God has just given me. But this individual, I'll never forget, it was late in the evening. We had been talking for a few hours. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you know what, Aaron? He said, if God won't accept me for who I am, then that's not a God I ever want to serve. And he rejected Jesus in that moment. And I was just struck by the, the moment. And of course, I I was not able to fill you in all the details of our conversation, but at the end of the day, this is what he said. My sin isn't bad enough to warrant me surrendering my life to Jesus. It just isn't. What he didn't understand, what sometimes we forget in the church, is that God alone provides what it is that we can't. See, Abraham tells Isaac something. He says this, we just read it, God will provide for what? himself, the lamb. It's the setup to this ongoing revelation of God's redemptive plan, pictured in this one moment. Abraham does not know how God's going to provide, but looking back, we now do. Looking back, we now can see that Genesis chapter 22 is this beautiful future picture of the way that God is going to provide, not just for Abraham, not just for Isaac, but for everyone who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus. That altar that Isaac is laying on, that Abraham has his knife raised above that was preparing for that sacrifice, that's also the same geographical location that the first temple, which we call Solomon's temple, will be built. And sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice will be made on that place as it foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice that needs to come in Jesus Christ. And geographically, it's also the place of Calvary where Jesus later would be stretched out on a cross and where he would die to pay for the sins of people. So in verse 14, it says, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham is probably making a statement he did not understand. This place is going to serve as the place of redemption for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Because on this very place, God did provide a son. He was sacrificed. God did not spare him. And what we couldn't do, God did himself. And that, my friends, should be the thing that begins to stir our affections towards Jesus. John Stott The pastor of old puts it this way. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. You see, what your sin demands, God alone provides. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news, it is only good news when we realize that we have no hope in and of ourselves to provide for our own salvation. That's where it has to begin. And Abraham is being taught that through his line. It's why actually chapter 22, we didn't read it. It starts to go into a lineage. You know why? Because we're getting more detail about how it is that through Abraham, God is going to provide for the salvation that we need. See, Jesus in this moment is pictured as the hero of the story. So church, this is what I want. We cannot read Genesis chapter 22 and just... 
you know, ask the difficult questions, which it's right to ask, and not see what God was about, that this text was about him. Can I give you something just for free this morning? The Bible is not primarily about you. It's about God. And we read it with a self-centered focus that says, how can I see myself in this? And the Bible is God telling you what went wrong and who he is and what he has done on your behalf. Jesus, as we tell the kids downstairs, is the hero of our story. Jesus is the hero of Genesis chapter number 22. Last weekend, Jen and I went to see the Elvis movie. Sad life, just sidebar. I was like, eef, this is depressing. But as we're sitting there watching the previews, uh, there was a lot of previews coming on for the, uh, all the new movies coming up. And man, there's a lot of superhero movies. And I'm thinking, how many of these things can they possibly make? Like, they, a lot. They just keep coming out. And I thought about that. Um, because these superhero movies, they kill at the box office, don't they? Like, fill up the theaters, crazy people going there at midnight, all sorts of things. You're not going to find me there, but nonetheless. They all have one storyline, don't they? What's the storyline? The world is doomed until the superhero shows up. Always. And all of the people are like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then my favorite, Captain America, comes and he saves the day. And I thought to myself, like, why do we actually, like, why do we actually get intrigued by those stories? Because there's a sole reason we get intrigued by those stories. You know why? Why does Hollywood keep writing those particular storylines? It's because whether or not you're a follower of Christ, every single one of us knows a couple of things. We know that we're sinful at some level, even if we don't admit it, and we know the world is broken that we're living in, and we know that we're unable to rescue ourselves, that we need someone that's greater than us. You see, those stories are so powerful because they point in just a shadowed way of our need for a Savior. And listen to me, no greater provision has ever been made than your salvation. And if God did nothing else but save you from your own sin, then he would have already provided more than any of us ever deserve. So as we maybe walk through life and we demand that God does more, that we demand that God provide this way, maybe we get angry that he doesn't provide in the ways that we want, we have to first look at the cross. That Jesus has already given more than you deserve. And if you're in this room this morning, a couple of, couple of things, or maybe even online, there's a couple of things I want to share with you. First of all, this. If you're already a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been doing this for some time, maybe my prayer is that God would just reinvigorate you to the reality of your sin and what Jesus did for you. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you've never had a time where you've put your faith and your trust, I want to invite you to do that. Even right now when you're seeking, there's nothing special. You just ask him. If you have questions about that, me or one of the other pastors would love to have a conversation with you afterwards about what it means for you to trust Christ. Because ultimately, he's the hero of this story. So just a couple of quick implications out of that because I really wanted to unpack that this text is primarily about salvation. 
But because God provides for my salvation, I can also then surrender my will and obey what he commands. Look at verses one through three again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. See, when you and I experience the goodness of God in providing our salvation, it becomes my motivation to surrender and obey. Look at the text just one more time. Abraham's immediate surrender and obedience. He does not waver. Why? Because he had already experienced all of the good, unbelievable provisions of God repeatedly in his life. And he doesn't surrender and obey because it was easy. Matter of fact, I, we've already talked about this. I can't remember anything that was more difficult. And you may be at a place right now in your life where you're looking at the, the circumstances before you and you say, you know what? The last thing I want to do is surrender and obey. When God does this, I'll do that. But to surrender is first and foremost about our posture and our promptness. Abraham hears God's voice and his response is quick. Here am I. He doesn't hesitate. He obeys. That's what surrender and obedience looks like. Can I ask you a question? What holds you back? When I talk about surrender and obedience, what holds you back? Because rarely it is that we just don't know what it is that we're called to do. More often than not, it's just desire. We really love what makes us happy more than what we, we know will make us holy. And I want you just to consider the gospel, which I have spent a significant amount of time this morning on purpose talking about. It provides the ability. We're now free in Jesus Christ. So we come here this morning, and we're going to celebrate the 4th of July, and the freedom that we have in this nation. And we get all excited about that, and we have barbecues, and we wave flags, and all of those things are amazing. And yet, we don't often get that excited about the freedom that we now have in Christ that now allows us to actually be able to obey. It's the motivation because of what Jesus has done, not in order to leverage God's favor on our behalf. But then last, because God provided my salvation, not only can I surrender my will and obey, but I can also experience now the blessings of Jesus' obedience and victory over my enemies. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, Verse 17, I will surely bless you and surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
When we think about what these verses are teaching, sometimes we can move past them so easily and quickly and simplistically. This future promise for God's people in Israel. But if you take a moment and consider that the promises are offered to the offspring of Abraham and it's through them that they will be blessed, I want you to know this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the blessed offspring of Abraham. We get to experience everything that God promised. Everything that you see in this text, the promises in this text, because his promise extends to us through Jesus. Can I give you some proof? Paul writes it this way in Galatians chapter three. Know then that those of faith, those who trusted Christ, who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what? Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. I want you to understand the gospel was preached to the Old Testament. It's relevant. It's not something we can throw away because all of it points to Jesus himself. Saying this, in, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Listen to me. God's promises to Abraham are not anchored in Abraham or Isaac or their future obedience or your future obedience. All of those things are secured by God himself. Jesus' is perfect obedience we just need to remember that because when Jesus died and when he rose again, he secured for us by his very obedience, his obedience to the Father, the promises of God himself. We can count on the promises. As we walk through this series and we start to dive into the individual promises of God in the Psalms, we can always go back, I pray, to this moment and say, all of those things are true. All of the yeses find themselves in Christ. All the yeses and amen are anchored in Christ Jesus. We can look and say, I know that God will provide for me in some way because he has first provided for my salvation in this way. That's how I am blessed. That's how we can stand in the midst of our enemies. It's his obedience. God says this, by myself I have sworn. It is the Lord who makes and keeps his promises because of who he is. And who he is is threaded with his complete and utter goodness. The writer of Hebrews in chapter six, and I'm gonna close with this, puts it this way. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. So let me stop there, because we all do that, right? If you've ever, if you've ever made an oath to somebody, like, no, I, I promise, I promise, I, I, I swear in my mama's grave, that, that's, what, that's an oath. That's what you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm gonna swear on something that I believe is greater than myself. 
But God, because of his very character and nature, there is no one by which God could swear that was greater than himself. So he swears on himself, on who he is, on his very nature and character. So then verse 17, so when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he did what? He guaranteed it with an oath that was anchored in the promises of God himself because of who he is so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, right? When Jesus comes, everything that was in that temple, in the Holy of Holies, that is at the place where Abraham first was to sacrifice Isaac. Jesus now abolishes. The veil is torn. Salvation is secured. And every promise from there on forward. Where Jesus has gone before as a forerunner on our behalf, not you. Having become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what are the blessings and victories that we now have? We have a hope. I don't know where you're at this morning, as I've already said. I don't know where the struggle is at, where you think God is not going to provide. But there's a strong encouragement to hold fast. Why? Church, because of Jesus. That victory that we have is experienced now and for all eternity because of Jesus' obedience that was secured over our greatest enemy, and that enemy is sin and death. And at the end of the day, in all of the things that we can look at, there is one thing that always looms ahead of us, that is always before us, that creates one of the greatest angst in our soul. And the reality is that our sin says there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God, but God has done it. And that death, physical death, is inevitability. But for Jesus. Church, Jehovah Jireh is not just a name of God. It's an unwavering promise to us because it is exactly what he has provided first in your salvation. Amen and amen. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we can just spend some time in this text and we can see what you had always planned to do. Before the foundation of the world, God, you promised us that you would make a provision because of our sin in order to save us and reconcile us and bring us back to a right relationship with you. And so, God, this morning we praise you for that. Father, thank you for the ways that we can now walk in obedience to the glory of your grace. Father, encourage our hearts, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship together.